All right, everybody. Well, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Bottom Line. I'm CJ Wilson with Stephen McClurg, and today we're in. Uh, we've invited Brian Heinrichs from uh, the traditional banking world, and this should be a really fun conversation as we talk about regional banks and digital banks, Bitcoin, and some of the other just broad compliance issues that are out there uh, for for clients and for uh, and for the banks themselves. So, Brian, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction on yourself and, and what you guys do? Yeah, so Brian Heinrichs, I'm the CEO of uh, Fourth Capital uh, Bank based here in Nashville. Um, you know, we're, we're, I think we're a tech forward bank, but at the same time, we're focused on Nashville and this market. Our tagline is decidedly local. So it's all about combining, you know, digital tools with human touch. We think that's the winning formula. And so that's kind of us in a nutshell. Yeah, and I just want to say that, you know, I, I was introduced to, to you uh, through a common friend. And then we ended up moving a lot of our accounts over uh, to Fourth Capital because we had two things in common. Number one, you're supportive of Bitcoin. And uh, number two, uh, we also wanted to have a decidedly local presence in Nashville alongside our national presence as a, as a firm at Valkyrie. Um, but uh, could you give a little bit of explanation? You know, why, why are you called Fourth Capital? I, I think that story is pretty interesting. Yeah, so we're, we're called Fourth Capital because, for one, Nashville was the fourth capital of Tennessee. So it's a nod to our location, our geography. Um, there's some other connotations in there around fourth industrial revolution. Obviously, the word capital ties into what we do, which is kind of the business of, of money. Um, but, you know, it really... At its core, our brand embodies that idea of personal relationship. Like Stephen just mentioned, we're local, but we're also nimble. We're thinking about tech. We're thinking about where the world's going. You know, I like to think of us as an anti-bank. Um, we're trying to kind of be a bank that's never been built before. And so that's sort of all kind of embodied in, in our brand. And if you were to come see some of our physical assets and what they look like and, and the way we're interacting with clients, I think it's quite a bit different than, than what people would have, uh, would think of as a traditional bank. And hopefully that comes through in creativity and being nimble with ideas and solutions and really serving the, the clients in the process. Yeah, I think, I think as a, someone that's in the brick and mortar business myself as a car dealer, I think there's just like these two really opposing forces between being nimble and technologically advanced and, you know, focusing on the online experience or the digital experience. And then also having this sort of premium feel where people feel like they're getting value through that personal relationship. And I think banking a lot, some banks are going the opposite direction. They're really trying to go like you have neo banks that are completely online with no physical presence. And then you have other banks that are sort of like firing their tellers. And just having, you know, some sort of a, a vending machine effectively taking your checks and distributing cash or whatever it is you have to do. So, like, when you guys are, when you guys come to a fork in the road, how do you, how do you keep the lenses, you know, the, 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 I would say the theme of personal relationships and, and future relationships as a driving force when the, the temptation to go, you know, really digital and potentially, you know, um, alienate your core base? How, how, is, how do you guys manage that, that kind of gap? Yeah, uh, well, firstly, I'd say what, what makes us unique is we're privately held, mm. single shareholder. We're not for sale. We're not going public. 
So, you know, if you take away sort of that quarterly pressure of earnings, stock price, that manipulation that goes into, we got to get two more cents on our EPS or our stock price is going to fall, but we don't want to get 10 cents because then it's going to go up too much and it's going to set expectations for the future. I mean, if you take away kind of all that man-made nonsense is Mm -hmm. what I like to call it, and we can sit in here and make the right, what we think are the right long-term decisions, then it's, we're not thinking about, well, we've got to cut tellers or close locations because our efficiency ratio needs to be improved. Mm. You know, we're not chasing different things. So if you were to sit down today and draw out a Venn diagram, not to nerd out on you guys, but I, I know Stephen would have an appreciation for some Venn diagrams. But, uh, you know, you really have two segments of banking today and, mm. and you've got sort of the large in, in broad strokes. You've mm. got kind of the large incumbent national regional players which you sort of described to a T, they might have some technology sophistication, um, some other things in in their tool set, but their mantra is kind of, uh, please don't call us, sure as hell don't come see us. (laughs) And that's kind of how they think. On the opposite end of the spectrum, and good luck finding their phone number if they're a a true like neobank. But anyway, Um, On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have kind of the community bank player who probably has that relationship and and maybe some of that personal connection, but they don't necessarily have the sophistication, the talent, the the ownership structure to afford the investment and kind of that long-term view around technology and best in breed and, and all of those things that are happening. So, you know, we like to think of if you took those two kind of sides of that Venn diagram and overlap them, we think we sit where that piece overlaps and very few other people um, are doing that. So that's kind of our view of the of banking in general. But a lot of it starts with, pri- with that idea of being private and mm-hmm. making long-term decisions. Yeah, it's interesting because when, when I was out in, in California where I spent a, a good amount of time, you know, before moving to Nashville last year, uh, there was another bank and I'd only found one other bank that, that had that type of structure and that type of goal. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's, it's really hard to find, right. But it, it, it does exist. Very few exist. Uh, but th- this particular bank, uh, was very tech forward, but also very relationship driven too. And it, it's a, it's a great combination if you can get it now, the issue we ended up having with that bank is one day they decided, hey, any of our clients that are, um, that, that are moving money back and forth to say Coinbase or are utilizing our bank to purchase Bitcoin or, to, uh, or, or, or if your company is in the blockchain industry, uh, we're gonna cancel all your accounts. And they just sort of decided that one day and uh, this, this tech forward bank that, was, that had probably one of the best customer relationships I'd ever come across, just, just one day decided, yeah, we're not, we're not gonna support that. And by the way, we're not gonna support you know, payments companies either. We don't like that risk. And they just started cutting out all the risk. And, uh, and it's a Silicon Valley you know, uh, located bank you know, where, the, where the headquarters is. Uh, so so how, do you, how do you navigate that? You know, how, how do you navigate the world of blockchain and Bitcoin and, and, and what you are doing uh, at Fourth Capital? 
Yeah, I think for us, just kind of starting out as a premise, I mean, I could give you all of my views on Bitcoin and blockchain and all that, but it's not really relevant. I mean, our goal as Fourth Capital is to make it as easy as possible for you to do with your money what you want to do with it. And so it's not about us making just right. I mean, it's like, you know, mind blown sort of of stuff. So, you know, obviously we play in a regulated industry, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I've got a whole counter view on that, but that's for a, a different podcast. But, you know, the reality is that it's all about sitting down with the client, meeting their needs, like I just said, making access to your money however you want to use it. And if we do our homework and, and put in the time and effort, there's nothing restricting us from doing that. So, you know, one of our hallmarks is, is what we call yes mindset. And I think what happens at a lot of financial institutions is they develop, I think, the opposite. And it's all in the name of efficiency and uniformity. And, you know, I I think of most banks like a pipeline. Well, how do you make a pipeline more efficient? Everything going into it has to be exactly the same. And so what you do is you set up a filter at the beginning of the pipeline that anything that looks weird just doesn't get in. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to turn that on its head. And really, how do we get to a yes? How do we make things work? Um, and, you know, to, to kind of go a little bit deeper on that, I think one of the fundamental issues in the financial industry is how siloed these organizations are. So if you're in a credit function or a general counsel function or a risk function at, at most organizations, you don't get paid if things go well. You get fired if something bad happens. And so there's this whole push-pull. So it's not surprising that the majority of institutions out there, their risk manager, their general counsel is going to say no. Because why? Do, what do they get out of offering Bitcoin to their clients? Nothing. And so that you got to kind of bring it down to that individual level of that decision maker. And a lot of that, and not just Bitcoin or tech, I mean, it could be a loan. It could be anything that that an organization's doing but a lot of times it came down to one individual and what their personal incentives are that drove some sort of sea change like that well that's so that's that's what's really interesting because as you were talking you know going off steven's uh commentary um the thing that i was thinking was you know in a lot of ways the traditional banks have been creating orphans of their clients right the, the, the bank is sort of the protector or the parent in a lot of ways. It's where we house things. It's like this physical representation of our future in a lot of ways because we're getting loans, we're paying money back, we're seeing something build, we have a savings account, something like that. It's a very traditional aspect of that. As the, the neobanks have been coming in, it's been more focused on like investment, right? And, and going from not just money management on a cash flow basis and a savings basis or a loan basis to like suddenly you know, everyone's focused on having your stock portfolio attached to your savings account. So it's sort of like, you know, incentivizing people to trade more and buy more stocks and, and things like that. So the orphan, the orphanage of effectively uh, of the cryptocurrency just landscape broadly has been picking up a lot of people that have been disenfranchised from how they've been treated. And so people are like, oh, well, I just, I'm just going to go outside the system completely. The problem is, or the reality, I should say, is that it's very hard to operate in a sort of 
let's say a Bitcoin only zero cash lifestyle. It's we're still not necessarily there yet. And I know some people are pushing for that, you know, which is like the very far edge of the of the Bitcoin space. But you know, it sounds like what you guys are talking about is really taking a holistic look, like almost like an Eastern medicine look at the at the client themselves to say, hey, what do you really need? How can we help you? And 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 then what's good for the client is effectively good for the bank because then you keep growing their assets, you know, in house, and you're not losing them completely to another service or another bank or whatever. So keeping that, I think, you know, there there is a phrase for it uh, that that I think you used before we turned on the the record button. But I really think that it's a huge differentiator for you guys at Fourth Capital that you're able to um, to offer a real A to Z kind of thing um, without without alienating people because they don't have to do anything in particular, right? But you're giving them more optionality so that they can diversify as they see fit because it's really their money. And if they keep, and then, but by allowing them to do that, they keep their money with you guys and, you know, have that, have that personal relationship and everyone's learning as we go. You know, I just think that's, that's just awesome. It's just a comment, not a question, but I think that's, that's great because the, the sort of financial orphanage factory uh, that some of these other wall street banks are doing, it's really pissing people off. And it, it, for, for the last couple of years, people have been seeing maybe the last two decades, people have been seeing risk taking by the banks themselves. Right. And then the clients aren't allowed to take risks. So it's this very weird you know, dichotomy between those two things. So you guys are sort of blending a little bit more of a middle, middle of the road approach to say, Hey, we're going to have our fingers in different things or allow you to have your fingers as a client, in different things. Um, tell us about how, how that integrates with, with Bitcoin or, I mean, maybe like a percentage of clients that are asking about Bitcoin services and how you guys handle that. Yeah, let, let me, I'll talk briefly about what you just said, because I think you're right on. And it goes a little bit deeper than that. I, I think it really comes down to fundamentally what is the, what's the objective of the organization? And all of those things you mentioned of like a traditional or, or larger bank or even the neobanks, They've all sort of uh, started from the premise or operate from the premise of how do we make money? Mm. And so everything is geared toward why do they want your wealth commingled with your bank account? Because they can get fees. And so they got in a room with their CFO and said, we need non-interest income. We need wealth department. We need a mortgage department. We need all this. And if we Mm. can get all of our customers to do all of these things, we don't care if that's good for a customer. We, We get more fees. Yeah. And so, you know, when you think about fourth capital, we don't do wealth. We don't do these other things. Our whole idea is we want to be best in breed of what we do. Mm-hmm. We want to add value to our client. And if we do that over the long term, then there's a mutual benefit of our clients uh, get rewarded through their business or whatever they're doing. And we end up getting rewarded through long-term relationships. So if you come at it from add value versus make money, that's a two completely different outcomes you can get on some of these things we're talking about. Um, as far as the, the, as the Bitcoin piece, I think you're right on. So there's a, there's a segment of the market today that's not being banked mm-hmm. because they can't find the experience they want or they kind of believe in this alternative financial world that we don't live in yet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, we had Stephen out here in November and had a, a great um, event and he talked about Bitcoin. It was fantastic. We had a really diverse 
crowd there. One of the people in the crowd happened to be a video gamer who earned Bitcoin from playing video games 10 years ago. And he's really not in the banking system. So, you know, from our perspective, that's someone we want to bank. That's a relationship we want to grow. Um, again, not because we're making fees or whatever, but because that's the kind of we're trying to be part of an ecosystem of creators and developers and inventors and disruptors that are, you know, changing the, the world. Because mm -hmm. we feel like in our own little way, we're trying to do that same thing. So giving people access and, and being inclusive financially around these different tools just, just fits what we're trying to do. It's all about and it's a long term value play. Yeah, it seems seems like you guys would be a pretty easy company to recruit to, right? Because you're you're chasing after desirable clients in a really desirable market. Um, like you said, you're looking for creators and all these people that are sort of in growth mode. Uh, Nashville seems like a city very much like Austin, Texas. That's that's getting a lot of people. A lot of people are landing in Nashville uh, because of all the opportunities, because of the cost of living, the barbecue, the music scene. Uh, the personal relationship, sort of Southern hospitality vibe. Um, how, how, how do you guys look at growth in regards to the employee side? And the, is there like a client to employee ratio that you guys are looking to maximize? Or is there anything there that um, you're seeing people want to leave like traditional banks and come work for you guys because they like what you're doing and they've heard that what you, what you guys are doing is better and more effective? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, despite the fact that I'm a numbers guy by history, I probably spend 90% of my time on culture because mm -hmm. I think culture is king and, you know, having our principles and the way, and the way we operate, I think we've been pretty successful with our talent pool. Um, we have people that really care. We're going through kind of our annual, we don't even call it a review. It's kind of an annual self-reflection, if you will, mm -hmm. not to get back to the Eastern medicine uh, concept, but, um, you know, our biggest criteria is, are you all in? Mm. And so when you think about, you know, if, if you have somebody that's a cultural fit, that's all in, I, banking's not hard. We I can take someone like that, or we can take someone like that and teach him the technical side. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to get that technically proficient person that doesn't fit our culture. Mm -hmm. So we're very, selective and who we want on our team and how we operate and how we develop that. Um, we've, we probably hired more non-traditional or people outside of banking because the idea of I built this book at some other bank and these are my customers and I'm going to sell myself as a free agent in my book. That's not us. Mm -hmm. We operate as a team. We don't do incentives based off of production no, names aren't on deal. So we're really doing it quite a bit different and we've attracted a lot of people and, and it really resonates with the people that, that are here mm -hmm. um, that want to be a part of, of that team atmosphere. We're all in this together and, and really for a, a lot of reformed, maybe bankers from other places, it takes a while for them to kind of understand you. I don't have to make a certain amount of calls every day. I don't have to, you know, have a checkbox sheet of, of activity and because it's not about that. It's about how do we serve the client. Mm -hmm. 
And so we'd love to add more. If they fit our culture, we'll hire essentially an unlimited amount. That's kind of how we look at it because it's all about growth and long-term um, more so than, than metrics. So tell me why, you know, and I've got my own reasons, but from, from what you're seeing right now, what, why is, why is Nashville an attractive place to, for, for people to relocate, for people to land? The last U-Haul report I saw, Nashville, I mean, sorry, Tennessee took out Texas and Florida for most U-Hauls going into the state. And Tennessee isn't as big as Texas and Florida. What do you, what do you, what do you think the appeal of Nashville is? What's, what's going on? Because you're, you're, you, you've got clients across the board. You're one of the biggest banks in, in town. So what's, what's happening here? What's the draw? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of draws. Um, I'll go first. And then obviously you moved here as well. Um, you know, having lived Chicago, New York, some other places. Yeah, I think the idea of being in a city that has all of the trappings, entertainment, restaurants, opportunities that you might get in a larger city, um, educational and enrichment opportunities for families and kids in kind of a naturally beautiful setting, pretty good weather, no state income tax, uh, high quality of life, you know, relative to maybe what Nashville was a, a few years ago, short commute times. You know, if you're coming from, I mean, I think people that have been here a long time, Obviously, the commutes are longer here than they used to be. But if you're coming from San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, New York, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not uncommon here to be able to find an acre lot that's 15 minutes from downtown in various neighborhoods or within a half an hour, 45 minutes, you could be on acreage that, that's basically living in a forest. And so, you know, when you take that and then combine that with, I think what people have recognized, whether that's some of the other companies that have moved here, like an Alliance Bernstein or the Amazons or the Oracles of the world, is you also have kind of this fresh thinking around creativity, not just in the music segment, but there's a whole vibe here around entrepreneurship, creativity. How do we make something new? And, and you almost have to spend some time here to get a sense of that energy and that drive of meeting people that are doing all sorts of interesting things. So just to be a part of that in, in a great place to live for a family is, I, I don't think you can beat that combination. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in Austin 20 years ago and there, there was certainly a create creative energy there and tech was, was just about to start booming. A lot of entertainment was coming there from LA and it wasn't just music. I mean, you know, Austin was, was really the music capital 20 years ago. And then all the film and everything, you know, everything kind of converged at once. Uh, and then I went to LA, but, uh, but in Nashville, that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like Austin 20 years ago, as far as the energy perspective, right? It's, it's film. Uh, I've, I've, I've met a few people that, that produce commercials. Uh, obviously it, it is the music capital right now of, of, of the U S and probably beyond. And, and of course, like you said, uh, tech is booming here and financial services are moving in. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it really is quite interesting, which, which really brings the next point. Uh, you know, I've also started recently 
meeting a lot of people that are uh, blockchain entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, here. And, and it's very recent. I mean, these people have moved from places like Chicago, New York, LA, San Francisco, even Austin in the last three months. And when, when I came here a year ago, there were probably three of us. Uh, and now there are about a dozen companies that are, that are pretty early stage that have moved their headquarters here. Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, Nashville is, is sort of, I think there's space for new ideas. And, you know, if, if you think about like when, when I worked in New York or whatever, if you went to a, a bar after work, it's 95% Wall Street bond trader equity. And so, and that may sound a little weird, but there's not, there's really no space there for kind of alternative or new. It, it, they're all sort of in the same game and they're, they're, they're getting enriched off of playing the game that exists today. Mm -hmm. And I think Nashville, there's sort of this vibe around, and maybe it's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder or whatever, but there's this little bit of vibe of we want to change the world, whether that's through arts or, you know, the healthcare tech's big or Bitcoin or, you know, some of the banking segment. And so I, it's just a different energy and mentality then how do I join the club that already exists versus how do I make a new club? Right. Well, I think that the way I look at it, I try to relate it to people because I've lived all over the country with my baseball travels and stuff like that. And there's certain cities that have so much energy because it's, it's kind of like a lava vent in the ocean, right? Eventually there's all this energy, this heat that comes and it comes up and forms effectively like what looks like a moonscape right? It's like black and it looks like nothing can grow there. And then suddenly these things just start germinating, right? Because the heat and the, the sort of freshness of everything. And you see, then, then there's like a lushness that happens as a result of that. But there's a lag time where there's the foundation that gets built, whether that's a, a you know, a, a grid network or a sort of a university or some sort of like energy that you can kind of build a, a scaffolding around. And then you have these people latching onto that because they see the opportunity and they see the, the wide open spaces. And they're like, wow, I can move out of a city and into a space where my mind can sort of spread out a little bit. And instead of wasting three hours a day on the train or in traffic, I can spend three more hours on the quality of life. And the result of like that, that drive to succeed and the quality of life going up is very attractive. And then what happens is you get the kinetic energy of everybody kind of recompressing, moving in, and you get these very interesting sort of like cultural evolutions that happen because that one influence that everything started under suddenly does, it doesn't get like, it doesn't change. It still stays there as like a, a pillar of the community or a pillar of the culture. But then you have these other opportunities that pop up because people like that original thing. And then other things pop up and then there's a sort of, I think like a critical mass that happens. And I think we're seeing that in, in Nashville right now, like Steven said with U-Hauls and, and people are leaving places like California. I live in California people are leaving. And the question is like, where, where would you want to live? And what are the factors, you know, and you just listed a bunch of the factors why people would like to move to Nashville. And the fact that there are premium services that grow as a result of the freedom, because there's still companies that are small enough to remain private. I think that's like a very key differentiator with what you're talking about with, with what you guys do. So it's cool that you guys are in, in a way contributing to that, that economical cycle of, of attractiveness and the sort of magnetism it happens. But I, I like to think of that like that lava flow 
of creativity. Like you never know what's going to happen, right? Because it, it's like this, but it starts black and it starts, you know, really like dangerous in a way because it's so spread out and so wide open. And then you have grass and trees and fruits and birds and all this other stuff that sort of like pops up out of nowhere because people eventually just sort of stay contained in that ecosystem. And as they stay contained, but they have outside influence, it sort of forces a faster evolution and a, a growth cycle. Um, and it's just, it's, it's super cool to see that from the outside because everybody that I know that's moved to Nashville is like moved to Nashville, you know, whereas people that have moved to Austin are like, don't move to Austin. We've got enough, you know? So it still seems like there's, there's room on the arc. There's still room on the, there's, you know, room in the pews of the Nashville church, so, so to speak. Uh, but that's, that's really cool. Cause I think from a, a growth standpoint, uh, you know, banking is, is really one of the few things that everybody needs, right? Like not everybody needs country music. Not everybody needs live entertainment. Not everybody needs brisket. I mean, I need brisket. I need brisket. I need brisket, but, (laughs) but, yeah, there you go. (laughs) But, but everybody, especially successful people that are growing, they need someone that, that has empathy towards the thing that they're trying to do. You have startup companies, you have people that have maybe sold the company and relocated and now they're starting their second company or they're starting their new venture or they're trying to expand. So like not to say that you can let the cat out of the bag with certain types of customers, but do you see like a sort of a cross section of customers that are coming to you guys as new clients that, that really take the, all all the services that you guys are able to provide and, and really kind of run with the ball at that point? Yeah, I think for us, I mean, you know, we pride ourselves on sort of that relationship client, you know, where, where we're banking their, their business, probably on the deposit treasury loan side. We're also banking them personally. We're banking their kit. So it's sort of that holistic uh, view of banking and doing it in a way that really, you know, I was having a conversation with one of our colleagues today because we're, we're working with a client right now. And uh, the client kept saying, well, what, what does your loan look like? What, what, what are your terms and so on? And, and, you know, we kept saying, well, what do you need? Like, wh- what do you want to have? And then, you know, and, and it's just a night and day different experience that people aren't used to. They're used to getting a laminated, you know, sheet passed to them across the table that says, which five of these loans do you, can you qualify for and do you want? And so stripping that back and really what a novel idea to maybe ask someone what they want instead of us telling them what we think they want. And Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of turning that, that on its head. But you know, if you do that in a holistic manner, um, you can bank startups. We've got several private equity firms that we help do acquisition financing where we're banking the firm. Plus we're banking, you know, the, the companies that they own. Um, we're banking very mature companies. We're banking artists and entertainers. We're banking a couple healthcare uh, startups that were a little bit of a flyer, but we believed in kind of the idea of what they were doing and the people. So, you know, it, it's it's just a more liberating way of doing business when it's really a handful of us that sit down the hall here that make the decision. We don't send it off to some other state of some nameless, faceless credit committee that, that says yes or no based on a spreadsheet. Mm. And so bringing that human component into it um, changes the game completely. 
And, and that's really, that's the secret sauce is, is, you know, getting away from the formula and, and bringing in the human element. Mm. At the end of the day, it's a people business banking is it's and it's, it's not hard. I mean, wall street forever has tried to convince everybody that all of this financial stuff is hard. It really isn't. Um, you know, some of the nomenclature is there's a great line and uh, Michael Lewis is one of my favorite authors. Um, and in boomerang, you know, uh, the book he wrote a few years ago, he, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but Wall Street started as a place to help people and small businesses. And what it is now is a, is a bunch of financial geniuses ripping people off. And so we're trying to get back to what, uh, what Wall Street was back yeah. in the day, but maybe have some of that sophistication to bring some of those tools to it, but in a human way that best serves the client. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's interesting because you know we 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 both come from a capital markets background, and I I, I love to, uh, I think I think we like talking about the glory days, you know, when we get together because there there aren't too many people yet here in Nashville that that have that that background, but uh, uh, based based on that, based based on 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 what you're seeing today in banking, what you saw in capital markets before. Um, let's let's talk about Bitcoin for again for a moment, and and I'm going to ask you this question. You last time last time we did something together live, you asked me this question. Now I'm going to ask you, where where do you see Bitcoin going? What do you think the adoption is going to be? What do you think it's going to be used for? And how do you see it being uh, integrated in our in our normal lives, or or even or even in in, in, in banks? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously you guys are the experts. Um, you know, I think short term, which is kind of where we're playing today, you know, giving our clients the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin right from their bank account. I think it's seen more of as, as an investment class. Um, you know, however, people ask me this all the time, you know, well, is it a currency? Well, yeah, I think it is. You know, if you buy, you may have investments in euros, for example. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm flying to Europe to buy stuff in euros. It may mean that I want to diversify exposure into different currencies or different asset classes or whatever. So, you know, I think, I think you have, just like you do in a lot of different tech scenarios, you've got your very early adopters. There, those those people already buying and selling Bitcoin with, you know, items with Bitcoin today. You've got sort of that next wave, which is probably where we're kind of going to sit right now, which is people that are saying, I want to have some exposure to it. I want to play in it. Let's sort of see how it goes. Um, I certainly see a world where uh, blockchain and the technology gets used in multiple uh, places. I was having a conversation today at a real estate luncheon with somebody that's exploring the idea of how do we do use blockchain for real estate transactions and the potentially use digital currency in closing those or, or whatever. So I think there's a future for it. Um, I think eventually, you, you know, it'll, it's going to take time 
I think we've got, we have to see some of the volatility uh, come out of it in order for it to be, you know, a legitimate first tier currency, if you will, at, at some point. However, I mean, the, I think the S&P 500 is, has the same volatility right now as, as Bitcoin, but that's, a, that's another conversation. But I think it's here. It's real. Um, you know, we'll see the timing and the evolution of where it goes. But going back to what I said at the beginning, none of that really is relevant from a fourth capital perspective, because my role and our role as a bank is to make it as easy as possible for you to use your money, whether that's cash or Bitcoin or however you define money as an individual. Our job is to make it as easy as possible for you for you to use your own resources. And so that's really our goal and how we're going to play in it um, going forward. So what, one question I have, because I'm with you a lot. I, my mom was in the realty space and I feel like the, the, the transactional realty business in general is like super murky, lots of paperwork, lots of waste and lots of friction and time spent. Digital escrow for me is very fascinating as a use case, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, but it, in terms of like, in terms of Bitcoin and banking, the one thing that people have for, let's say, hundreds of years felt is that their money is safe in a bank, right? Because of the sort of vault process or something like that. So how do you explain, you know, personal security when it comes to like financial stuff, because when because you guys have clients that are logging in online on their devices or something like that, um, how how do you explain or how what kind of questions do you get asked about Bitcoin security or like device security as opposed to uh, just traditional online banking? You know, can you talk about that for a little bit? I, I would say today most of the people that we that are interested in doing uh, Bitcoin through us have already answered those questions. In fact, they're probably already have it on Coinbase or they've been smart enough to buy Valkyrie's ETF or, or whatever. But, um, you know, as we think through that going forward, I think it's very important. Some of it's an education component to banking in general. I mean, let's be frank. I mean, newsflash, banking technology is 50 and 60 years old. And maybe if people sort of sat back and realized all of your money is, is on code that doesn't even exist anymore, that they might warm up a little bit to, oh, wow, we've got new technology. It's more secure. We can track it. You know, you've got the blockchain, so on and so forth. Um, and then you start to think about real-time payments and wires and AC and all of these other things that are really kind of antiquated. And we've come up with a better way. And so, you know, some of that education, and that's one of the reasons, you know, I think having Stephen out and, and having some of these conversations in front of our clients, um, it's a collective education process to say, you know, let's evolve. You know, why is Europe doing open banking, open API? And here I can't see my credit card balance on my uh, on my online banking if they're at different places. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And, you know, I can tell you why that is. It's because a lot of banks don't want to make the investment to, to get on the new technology because they're riding it out. But, 
you know, I, I think collectively as a whole, I think people like us that are like-minded on the future and where we're headed, you know, we need to be spending a fair amount of our time educating and putting information out there and really getting in front of people what it means to, to, to you know, get on better tech. We've developed better technology. You're not yeah. driving the same car you did 50 years ago. You're not watching black and white television. You know, you have a smartphone in your pocket. They, they've already embraced these new technologies in every er other area of their lives. This doesn't, that's not that, this isn't that big of a leap, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think like having to, having to go to a bank, a physical location and send a wire, you know, one of the things that Bitcoin gets a hard time with is there's only so many tra transactions per second. They say things like that. They're like, oh, well, you know, Visa can do this or, you know, Swift can do this or whatever else. But a physical person that wants to send a $5,000 wire or a $20,000 wire or whatever number it is, if they want to send that to another person or to a business because they're going to put a deposit on a car or, you know, a house or, you know, a tractor or whatever. Like every time I have to go to the bank locally because I have a business account. Uh, for, for one of my other businesses. And I have to go there. Like yesterday, I had to sit in line for 40 minutes, you know, and and it took me another 30 minutes to send the wire. So when people say, oh yeah, but Bitcoin can only fit so many transactions per second. I'm like, well, I can program this thing to like send the money and then I'm done. You know, then it's out of my hands and I can go move on with the rest of my day. And I think that's one of the things where people like myself and, and Stephen probably as well that use Bitcoin a lot, we see that as a big advantage because it gives people a little bit more control over their time, the way they use it. Um, but I do think, I think we're a ways away from Bitcoin being like really ubiquitous right now. The estimates are that we have like, let's say 20, 30, 40 million people in America using crypto, but I don't think you have 20 or 30, 40 million people using, you know, five to 10% of their total transaction volume in it. Right. A lot of people are using credit cards and that stuff. So it's really interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about the credit facility and how you've seen credit evolve in the last couple of years with just like being a private bank versus maybe working at different elements of the of the financial sector a little bit? In terms of Bitcoin or overall? Just overall, because I think one of the things that people people don't understand a, a lot, and people that don't understand banking, they don't understand the money supply, you know, but they really don't understand fixed credit supply, right? Like yep. sort of what's the, what's Z, I think it's called Z1, right? Like what the, the fixed credit is. So how do you guys manage like the credit that you allocate or the credit that you, that you, that you borrow? And then what's the, well, like how does a private bank handle that as opposed to a publicly traded bank? Yeah. Oh, well, I think um, you're hitting on something that's kind of a big issue in banking right now. So if you look historically, loans and deposits tracked each other fairly well. When we got into 2020 post COVID, there was a big divergence. So a lot of the stimulus, PPP, whatever. So now that the market's flooded with deposits, loan growth overall in the banking system has essentially been flat. So if you look today, the average loan to deposit ratio of the banking system in general is 57%, roughly. We're at 90. And so, you know, I think we have a different approach. Um, we're growing. I don't want to call it aggressive. I like to call it creative. Um, what you're going to see, and I think this will be interesting because I think it does have some application in, into the digital currency space. 
a lot of banks, and if you've looked at any of their recent comments, um, you know, because it's earnings season, they're wanting to shed deposits. They don't ever come out and say that, but it's more fees. The Fed's going to raise rates. They're not going to adjust their interest rates. So they're trying to rationalize their balance sheet between loans and deposits in the name of efficiency ratio, which also means they're cutting staff. The the, uh, article the other day on Bloomberg, record number of bank closings. So again, we don't really play in that world because I don't, we don't answer to someone, you know, uh, on our March 31 um, results. So I think the idea for us is to be consistent in the market at all times. Uh, Our vision in short is if it makes sense, let's do it. And I think other folks, it's sort of this hot and cold, where's our loan to deposit ratio? What do we like? What do we not like? And they're constantly sort of manipulating and changing um, their rates and their credit boxes to kind of fit, fit where they're at. And we just don't think that way. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Cause as a, as an entrepreneur, it's, it's, it's very hard, especially as a startup guy, it's very hard to get somebody that, you know, you can take some of your success in one arena and then apply it to another one and then have a sort of rational approach to the whole thing at the same time. You know, it's, it's one of the really big challenges, uh, is when you're running a business and you decide to start a new one, how do you sort of, how does the new business benefit? I guess it benefits when you have a relationship with somebody like fourth capital, where, you know, you're able to take a look at how you've done the, on the first one or the second one, and here you are again. Um, and then how do you provide those, those best in class services? So stay private, and stay, stay servicing because that's really, I think, uh, you're, you're obviously really taking really good care of your clients. So I, I think that's, that's commendable. I, uh, I like that. I like the private approach. I think it's, I think it's more direct, you know, and it's more pure, um, but it's difficult. It's a difficult road. So, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, look, Brian, it was, it was great having you. I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, we, we thank you for coming on the show. Um, we're going to wrap up Bitcoin Bottom Line today. But uh, Brian Hendricks, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a lot of fun. I, I, I appreciate the soft recruitment, uh, the, the Nashville thing. Stephen keeps pushing for this. I have a couple people tugging me out of California. So this is just another reason for me to explore the other possibilities. So thanks for your time, Brian. You won't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Bitcoin Bottom Line. This is CJ Wilson for Stephen McClurg and Brian Heinrichs. And uh, remember, everything we've discussed today is not financial advice. Uh, Make sure you do your own research and, uh, you know, stay careful out there.